We'll read together 1 Peter chapter number 5. And we'll read verse number 5 through verse 11. We've been studying the theme of strong this year. It's been our theme from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. We've had the opportunity this year to not only study the book of Ephesians, and we'll no doubt continue that in the next few weeks, but to have our wellness weekend where we had someone come help us with not only uh, spiritual, but how mental health fits with that, a family conference to help us think about how to have strong, resilient families. And this morning we'll look at a paragraph or so in First Peter that also helps us to be strong. In 1 Peter 5 and verse 5, Peter writes, he says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish strengthen, settle you. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And let's pray. Father, we pray that You'd use our time together in Your Word to teach us what we need to know, to help make us who we need to become, and we pray that the gospel would be clear to us. We ask this in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. Peter, 1 Peter, is a letter, one of the general letters that were written to Christians, believers who were in Asia Minor at the time, but the primary characteristic about the believers at this point in time was that they faced a lot of persecution. It was a very difficult life. The emperor of Rome, the Caesar, was a man who had a lot of issues. Not only did he not like Christians, but he had many other things that were a problem for him psychologically. His name was Nero. And you can only imagine what it would be like to be alive at that time where the only world-dominating force was the Roman army with a lot of generals who were fighting for power, a lot of dysfunction, and a lot of cruelty. For us, we look back at the cross of Christ and we understand what God did in it, but for the Romans, they ruled by being a very proud, very cruel, very dominating force. You got ahead in Roman politics by being the strongest, cruelest most power-hungry general that you could be. And if you won enough victories, you dominated enough uh, cities and territory, and you brought back enough slaves, that seemed to be the key to becoming a person of influence, of respect, whatever the case was. Peter was a man who was a disciple of Jesus Christ, and he was very 
powerful in the way he presented himself. He had a lot to say. He was always eager to be at the forefront of whatever was going on. But he had learned a lot throughout his ministry now as an apostle and leading the early church as a Christian. And he writes a letter to God's people. And if we would just sum it up, I think this is a helpful way to think about it. He says this. He said, God's people should live distinctive lifestyles as temporary residents in a foreign land. As people who belong to the God of the universe who has shown Himself, revealed Himself through Jesus Christ, people who have seen the gospel and have repented and believed in Christ, you know that God cares about you. You know that you're forgiven in Christ. You know that who you are in Him. You know that your eternal destiny, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, because of what Christ did, your eternal destiny is reserved for you. It's already taken care of, and it's right around the corner. And knowing that should change how you live. It should be very different than other slaves. It should be very different than other leaders. It should be very different no matter where you find yourself in society because you belong to Christ. And as he finishes this letter, um, he, he ends the part that we read with amen, and he'll continue with a few more words and greetings. But as he ends this letter, he ends it with one of the most profound paragraphs, I think we could argue, in the entire Bible. He talks about four ideas, and we just read it, but if we picked a word to cover each one of those ideas just to spend our time with this morning, I would say he covers humility, he talks about anxiety, he talks about the need for vigilance, and he talks about strength. He talks about humility, which is very clear. He talks about anxiety and how we live out that humility by casting our cares upon Him. He goes on to talk about the need for vigilance, and then finally about strength. And so let's look at first humility. Notice in verse number five, once again, he says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. He says, in the context of the church, and he had talked about husbands and wives and just talked about all sorts of relationships, he says, It's important that you submit yourselves one to another. And he talks about church leaders and he talks about the need for them to care for the, the flock and feed. And now he says, For younger to submit yourselves to the other. But now he says this, Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. Be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. One of the lessons I learned about this subject was when I was a teenager. I remember I was at a pastor's conference, and the pastor's conference was met in Chicago for one particular night. They had rented out the Genesis, the Genesis Convention Center, which is actually in Gary, Indiana, but part of the uh, Chicago area, and it seated 7,000 people, and basically every chair was full of pastors. And so you had 7,000 men gathered together for a night, and just all sorts of things happened and took place. It was a remarkable night, but the biggest lesson I learned was uh, I was there as a teenager with my friend I went to school with. His name was Cody. It was his birthday that day. It had been a long day, and I don't know what it is about birthdays, but uh, you don't have to worry about any diets. You can eat whatever you want, whatever looks good. You just eat when it's your birthday. And uh, I remember uh, it was his birthday, and this was at night. We were all there, filled this whole room, and Cody wasn't feeling very well. And he, there's few things worse when someone throws up in an enclosed area. And I just remember he threw up. He made it to the aisle, which was a blessing. He didn't, 
he, he made it to the aisle, and so no one else was directly impacted by it. But uh, he threw up all over the, the aisle, and we were all wearing suits. Everyone I could see around us was wearing suits and, and uh, trying to figure out what to do. And a younger adult named Aaron King, he was wearing the best suit out of all of us. He was the son of a pastor that I knew who was in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And before we knew what was going on, Aaron was like grabbing pieces of paper and everything he could get his hand on, and he started to clean up the mess. He cleaned up that whole mess of throw up right in the middle of this big conference center and all this stuff going on. There were a lot of lessons that we could have learned. It was kind of an incredible event. You don't get to be a part of an event like that very often. But I learned a lesson about being clothed with humility. In Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34, it says, God resisteth the proud. It says that that God scorneth the scorners and he giveth grace unto the lonely. And that's what Peter is quoting here. Peter's referring back to something that had been written thousands of years ago that Solomon had put in Proverbs. And he he said that that you don't, you want to understand something about how God interacts with us, that God is actually looking to interact with those who can humble themselves, who can come to Him unpretentiously. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's something very powerful about how God interacts with those who are proud and how, how God interacts with those who are humble. How many of you would like to think about the fact that God is resisting me? I want God to resist me. I want to live my life in such a way where, where God is actively, there's a distance between me and what God is seeking to accomplish. That is what pride can do in our life. The Bible is very clear about pride and arrogance and these toxic things that, that come up with us and what God is seeking to do in our life. In fact, Jesus would tell a parable. No doubt Peter was there when he told it. He talks about it in Luke chapter 8. He spake a parable unto them. And he said it specifically to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. So he specifically tells a parable to those who, for whatever reason, thought that they were righteous or at least more righteous or better off than other people that they could see around them. And he said this, he said, two men went into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. One was a good guy, reputable did all sorts of amazing things in the community, and he knew the law. The other was a publican, a tax collector, someone who is part of the rough crowd, the secular crowd. And it says that the Pharisee stood and he prayed this way. He said, God, I'm thankful. I'm not as these other men are. I'm not an extortioner, unjust, an adulterer. I'm not, I'm not even like this publican over here. I'm just thankful that, man, I, I, I do all sorts of great things, and I'm a blessing to my community, and everyone's glad to have me as a neighbor. And I'm just thankful, Lord, that you've allowed me to be this way and not like this publican who's over here in the corner. Poor guy. I'm thankful I'm not him. And then Jesus said, I pass twice in a week. I give tithes of all I possess. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much his eyes unto heaven. He smote upon his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This was Jesus' conclusion. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. 
You know, this publican didn't have justification with God, didn't have acceptance with God, didn't develop a relationship with God because of his sin. He didn't, it wasn't because he was uh, an adulterer. It wasn't because he was an extortioner. It wasn't because of his friendship with the world as it, was, as it were. It was because he could recognize who he was and come to God on the only terms God could accept. He had a repentant heart, acknowledging where he was. The Pharisee didn't even uh, couldn't even understand who he was. James would talk about that God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Jesus would exemplify humility. And so humility is something we, we want. Uh, it's not something we, it, it, God's grace isn't something we deserve by definition, but God wants to give his grace to those who are humble, and so we should pray for humility. But here's the question, here's the problem. If we say that in our pursuit of humility, that somehow I am just going to, there's a, there's a box I can check off, and this is how I become humble, we're going to find ourselves in, in, in trouble. If we had a contest to see, okay, who's the most humble person in the room, we see that this contest would be sort of be self-destructive. Uh, it doesn't work. How do we find out if we're humble? How do we humble ourselves? How do we know if someone is humble or if I'm humble? Or It, it can be a very challenging thing. If we say that in our pursuit of humility that I, in order to be humble, I will think less of myself. I'm just nothing. I can't do anything. I'm just lower than low. I just can't accomplish anything in life. That's not going to help us to be humble. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, and Pastor Andrew mentioned this as he's been talking about how we are different parts of the body and how we're needed to be in the body of the church, it says not to think of himself, we are not to think of ourselves more highly than he ought to think. And so there's a right way to think about who you are, and there's a wrong way to think about who you are. And I'll give an example. I'll try to give an example. Let's just say someone all of a sudden went into cardiac arrest in the room. I hope that doesn't happen, but it could happen. And uh, someone uh, from the back said, hey, is there a doctor in the house? Anyone know how to help this guy with a heart attack? It wouldn't be useful if those of you in the room who know about the heart and know how to do all the different things that need to be done to save someone's life would just sit back and say, you know, I'm, I'm just, I can't help at all. I don't, you know, I'm, have someone else do it. I'm just going to sit back in the background. What would we want to have happen? We would want those individuals who know how to help someone who's having a heart attack show up and say, hey, I'm here to help, and I have some background in this, and I can provide some, some help with that. And so being humble isn't simply thinking less of ourself. It's certainly not thinking more of ourself and having an inflated ego and relationship to those around us. The key to humility is thinking about yourself less. Humility is self-forgetfulness. Humility is understanding that there's a meaning that's so much bigger than me that I'm going to forget myself in pursuit of whatever that meaning is, whatever that good is, whatever God's plan is for me, so that I can forget myself and the desire to see good accomplish. For a believer, humility means that I know who I am in Christ. As a Christian, I am loved and I'm forgiven. I don't have to be anything but who I am in the case that God knows my sin. He knows my heart. He knows who I am. He knows my 
uprisings and my downrisings, as the psalmist would say. He knows me very well. I can be honest with God about that, and I know that God knows who I am even better than I know who, who, who I am in my own heart, and He loves me. In Christ, He has forgiven me. I can know that about myself. I can know my eternal destiny is secure. It's reserved in heaven. It won't fade away. And so instead of worrying about myself, instead of having to uh, make sure everyone recognizes what I've accomplished or who I am or get the respect I need here on this earth, I can focus on worshiping God. I can focus on a humble relationship walking with God and focus on serving others. Instead of worrying about myself, I can focus my life on worshiping God and serving others. I have a little book at my house. It talks about the ego. And it describes the ego, the human ego, like an organ in the body. And this organ in the body can be healthy. We have all sorts of different things that we need. We have lungs. We have a heart. We have a stomach. We have skin. We have all of these different things that we need in our body. And he talks about the ego as being part of us as well. But when the ego begins to be filled with the wrong things and starts to get inflated, it becomes very, very unhealthy. It can become toxic, this ego that we have within us. And he describes the ego, the human ego, as being four things. The ego is empty, painful, busy, and fragile. He talks about it being empty. He says our ego is always searching for something to give us a sense of worth. It, we're searching for a way to say, I'm important, and I'm valued, and, and, I, and people need to recognize me, and, and there's something in us that's searching for this. But whenever we try to put anything in the place designed for God, it's going to feel small and just rattle around. When we seek to fulfill or find our identity or meaning without the Lord, it leads to emptiness. And we begin to see this in others and ourselves. I there's a lieutenant, freshly minted lieutenant, the story, and, and he, uh, he just got upgraded, and he was an officer, and he got an office, and he was so excited, and he walks into his office for the first time, and he hears someone walking in the, in, in the hallway outside. So he quick grabs his phone, and he says, General, yes, General, I'd be happy to help with that. General, I'll take care of that. General, yes, sir. And he puts the phone down, and a private walks in, and he says, what can I help you with? The private said, I'm just here to connect your phone, sir. We see this desire in others to, to, to climb and to promote and to fill the ego and, and, to, and to do all of this. But the reason we recognize it in others is because we recognize it in ourselves. This need to fill up with oftentimes fluff what needs to be filled with who the Lord is in our life. So our ego is empty. It's painful also because an overly inflated ego, like an unhealthy part of our body, is always drawing attention to itself. You know, when you're playing basketball and you're in flow, you're not thinking about what your elbow is doing. You're not thinking about how your wrist flops at the end. You're not thinking about what your ankles are doing. Everything is just in the flow. Things are just going. And when you're having a terrible day in basketball, which is usually how it works for me, I'm trying to figure out how, why my, you know, why everything is off. And when you are having a good day, you don't think about your toe, do you? But when you're having a bad day and you wake up and you stub your toe, that's all you can think about. When our ego is unhealthy, when it's overly inflated, it's always seeking to draw attention to itself. It's always worried about how we look, how we're treated. 
People say that uh, my feelings got hurt or, or, or getting hurt, or that happens a lot. It's probably not that your feelings are hurt. Our feelings can't really get hurt, but our ego can get hurt as we are dependent upon other people to validate who we are, whether we're important or valuable or, or, or any of those different things. We're, 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 we, we experience pain because criticism in particular, it, it becomes devastating to us because it pops our ego that's overly inflated in emptiness, or we ignore criticism altogether because we can't handle it, and therefore we can't even improve. And so it's empty, it's painful, our ego is busy, so busy that our ego is always trying to draw attention to itself, filling the emptiness. It's like a, it's like a bag that leaks air that we're trying to pump up all the time as much as we can. And the way we pump up our ego is oftentimes uh, by, by, um, by boasting and by comparing ourselves to uh, other people. We, uh, we look around and, and we say, oh, I'm, I'm better than this or better than that. That's the Pharisee. The, the reli- and a lot of religion can be like this if we're not careful, where we, we seek to get to a certain point where we can look down at others and then we make that comparison and we feel good or maybe we feel bad because someone else is a little bit ahead of us. And, and we play this game where we're constantly trying to inflate our ego and it's deflating and it just occupies all of our time. We can live our entire life trying to keep our ego where it where we want it to be. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he wrote this about pride. He said this uh, in Mere Christianity. He said, pride gets no pleasure out of our having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? That perhaps when we think about life, certainly as an American, so much of our sense of well-being comes not with what we have, but how what we have compares to what someone else has. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. That's the busyness of our ego as it seeks to boast and compare and contrast, and it leads to envy and pettiness and jealousy and all of these things because it's so busy trying to keep itself inflated. Lastly, it's fragile. Anything overly inflated is in great danger of being deflated, like walking around with a big balloon. And it doesn't take a whole lot with someone with a little pokey tack to pop that balloon, and then we become deflated. We feel loved and appreciated in one moment or worthless and undervalued in the next moment because our ego is fragile. Someone said this, true gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. This is the freedom of self-forgetfulness. And I believe this is what Peter is talking about in verse number five when he says, Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud and giveth grace to the humble. He brings up this little bit about clothes. I don't know what brand of clothes you're wearing today. Maybe it's Calvin Klein or Timu or my favorite, George. Uh, You can get that (laughs) at Walmart. And uh, we, we all wear clothes, and clothes does speak to us. We wear clothes for protection. That's why we have Carhartt bib overalls for when we're 
out working on the truck in the middle of the winter time, or we might have clothes for going to the park in, in the summer. It's for gloves, for protection, it's for identity. It helps us identify who we are and share a bit about our personality. Uh, it's a covering. We wear clothes as we interact just as a culture among one another. And Jesus is saying, I want you, as you think about your clothes, I want you to be clothed with humility. Younger to the elder, I want you to be clothed with humility. Jew, as you talk to a, someone from a Gentile culture, and there were very different cultures, I want you to be clothed with humility. If you are a Greek and a Roman, and you speak different languages and eat different foods, and it's all kind of strange, I want you to be clothed with humility. If there is someone wealthy in your congregation, and there's someone who's very poor in the congregation, I want the poor to be clothed with humility and to serve the wealthy. And I want the wealthy to be clothed with humility as he relates to the poor. If you're educated and you know how to read and you have a big library and you're looked to for your academic uh, background, that's great. I want you to be clothed in humility as you relate to someone who's illiterate. Men, as you relate to women, and women, as you relate to older, and he specifically mentions older and younger in all of this, no matter what you do, be clothed with humility. This seems to be a reference to what Jesus did in the book of John, chapter number 13, where the disciples were gathered in a room, and Jesus, who knew very well who he was as God, Philippians tells us, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but took upon him the form of a servant. It says that Jesus actually took a towel and girded himself. He took a towel and girded himself like an apron. This is something that in that day and age was a very lowly job. This is a, a, the job of a, of a slave to to take a towel, take an apron, and it's a dirty job, and to go around and wash the different disciples, the, the people, the guests' feet. And so Jesus did that. He did that to Peter. There was a whole conversation about Jesus doing this to Peter. Peter didn't really want him to, but, but Jesus washed Peter's feet. And now Peter is saying, as you interact with one another, put on that apron and be clothed with humility, not thinking more about self or less of self, but forgetting yourself to serve others. Some serve as accountants. Some serve as brain surgeons. Some serve as taxi drivers, at least they used to a decade ago. Some serve as CEOs. Some serve as missionaries in a faraway country. Some serve mission as missionaries in their high school. But everyone should be clothed with humility, whether it's the surgeon's white uh, jacket or his surgical garb or it's the made cleaning the bathrooms, we should be clothed with humility. God resisteth the proud. When God wants to do something in our lives, He resists the proud, but He giveth grace unto the humble. And so He talks about humility, but the way we live out that humility, especially in relationship with God, He says, is in verse number 6 and 7, and that's how we handle our anxiety. Peter connects humility to our anxiety. He says in verse number 6 and 7, and this is all one sentence here, he says, Humble yourself therefore under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. That means in the right time. Not too early, not too late, but God will use you in His own way, in His own time. Humble yourself therefore under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all our care upon Him, for He careth for you. 
when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, when we're recognizing that God is not only in control, but He is in super control of everything that goes on in our world. I mean, in Genesis chapter 1, He spoke the world, the universe, into existence. Just that little phrase, and He made the stars also. As we've learned more and more about the stars, there's a lot captured in that little amount where God's power, His mighty hand is so He's he's so omnipotent, we can trust God and what He is doing in our world. It doesn't mean we don't have cares, because we'll have to look in just a moment how He tells us to be vigilant, which is interesting how these all are important to go together. And Peter, as he's writing, he says there's humility and anxiety and vigilance, and that leads to strength. But right here, he's saying understanding who God is and allowing Him to have His place and have His job and not trying to do His job is critical to what it means to be humble, to not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. This is like a potter molding clay to form it into some sort of vessel, and the clay doesn't necessarily know exactly what it's going to look like, but it resists the fleshly impulses to to resist or, or, or put up a fight and allows the potter to make the clay into something, and then put it in an oven, and then it to be baked, and then it to be a very useful vessel. Many times we live our lives in a hurry, we're impatient. We build houses of cards. We react to things constantly instead of living out the life that God has called us to live, understanding that our eternity is reserved for us and that even in the moment, God's mighty hand is in control. It's amazing, this conversation that takes place in the book of Job, where Job was wondering why so many painful things had happened in his life. He had lost his business and his, uh, his respect and his family and his health and all of these things he had lost. Why, God? Why all of these things? And God begins a series of questions. Job, where were you when the planetary system was put together? Where were you when the periodic table, you know, all these different elements were, were, were created? Where were you when the oceans were established and gravity and all of these different things? Where were you, Job? And Job had to recognize, as we have to recognize, we weren't around. God's in control of some things that are far beyond our ability to understand. And so we are to cast our care upon Him. What are you worried about today? If you were going to take your journal out and write down all the things that you're most afraid of, I wonder what would be on that list. I imagine there's some things that we're, I'm talking about, these fears that have been kind of a a dread, maybe in the background of our lives for the last few months or years. Maybe they're related to our health. Maybe they're related to politics. Maybe they're related to the economy. Maybe they're related to relationships that we have. But we all have fears that get us going and that threaten our peace. And these are anxieties that we carry in our hearts What Peter's inviting us to do, and by the way, he's not, he's not inviting us to do this because he isn't aware of what it's like to have anxieties or cares. And he's writing to people who have lots of reason to have cares. They're alive at a time where they didn't have the ability to, 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 to utilize the justice system like we do. They didn't have the Eaton police. They didn't have some of the things that we enjoy today, but they could cast their care upon him for he careth, knowing that he cares for them. And so, what we're being asked to do is to take our cares, our anxieties, and to give them to the Lord. This idea of casting our care upon Him is a lot like 
Well, it's casting. It's throwing our cares upon him. It's like the little schoolboy who comes home from school and he's got his backpack and he just throws it into the corner and off he goes. We take our concerns, our fears, and our anxieties and we give them to the Lord. We cast them upon him because he has a mighty hand. There's a little poem our girls memorized in school. It goes like this, said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these restless human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. The media understands that what will get the most attention is keeping people full of anxiety. They know that that's, it's going to be amazing. It'll be so much fun watching the news report the first time it snows here in the next uh, few whatever seasons, period of time we want to give it before it snows. And uh, it's always amazing. I was watching a news clip somewhere else the other day, and I was watching, and I couldn't hear it, but I did see the newscaster standing in the water so that they could see the water, right? And uh, it's so so much fun watching these meteorologists go way out of their way to put themselves in the middle of it all and uh, spend a few hours talking about the next thunderstorm that's going to come through. I'm not being hard on meteorologists, but it is interesting how it seems like if we're not careful, all the notifications and all of the alerts and all of the things that are coming into our lives prevent us from actually being vigilant. We need to cast our care upon Him. There's some things that God is in charge of taking care of, and then there's some things for us to take care of, and that's vigilance. Look quickly, if you would, at verse number 8 and verse 9. Lest we think that by casting our care upon Him, which we are commanded to do, instructed to do, it's part of humility. But lest we think it leaves us with nothing to even think about. In verse 8, he says, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. The only experience I've had with lions has been at the zoo. Usually the lions aren't walking around. They're sleeping in the corner somewhere. And even if they are walking around, there's a big piece of glass between me and them, and uh, hopefully it's been tested. For Peter and the people alive at that time, this is real. The devil is an intimidating, powerful force in their life. They can hear the roar of the lion even in Asia Minor coming from Rome. They've heard about Christians who suffered. They are aware of what it's like to go through just the difficulties of day-to-day life. And Peter's reminding them, I want you to be vigilant. I want you to cast your care upon him. He careth for you. You need to know that, but be vigilant because the devil is out to intimidate. He is seeking whom he may devour, and I want you to not be a worrier, but I want you to be a warrior. I want you to resist steadfast in the faith. I want you to know that there's other people like you who've come before and will come after and are walking the same path that you're you're walking, and I want you to walk in faith. I want you to know who God is. I want to know who you are in Christ, and I want you to be faithful no matter what happens. He doesn't say bad things won't happen to us. Adoniram Judson was a missionary to Burma. He was on a boat to India with his wife, and 
uh, God really used him uh, when he came to Christ to be just a, a, a lead thousands of people who hadn't heard the gospel to Christ. But you read about his life and his first wife, Anne, passed away. And then his next wife, I believe it was Sarah, passed away. And I don't know what his third wife was thinking. <laughs> but she outlived him by a few years. But I, it's, it's, I think it's pretty straightforward that God used Adoniram and he used his family to accomplish the things God wanted him to accomplish. But there was sorrow mixed in with that. There were unexpected parts of his life. And these things do exist. They are out there. But we aren't to live in fear. We're not to live in sort of a, a vulnerableness where we're just kind of waiting for bad to happen. We need to understand that God in his, with His mighty hand is in control. We can trust Him. We can cast our care upon Him. And we resist the devil by being steadfast in the faith. And it's remarkable, isn't it, what God did in the lives of the early church that Peter's writing to, looking back after a couple thousand years? It won't be that long later before the Roman Empire ceases to exist as such. But there's Christians all throughout the world. What Peter writes to them is true for us as well. Trade your anxiety for healthy vigilance. Let some of those alerts and problems and things that are constant worries, give them to the Lord so you can focus on walking in faith despite the roars of the lion. Be a warrior, not a worrier. I heard about a pastor who at one point, he uh, encouraged his congregation to do an exercise for 30 days, I think it was. He said, we're going to try to go 30 days without complaining. And the way he did it is he put a, a, one of those bands on your left hand. If you, uh, every day that you go without complaining, you put it on your right hand. And if you can go 30 days in a row without complaining, then you, you, you accomplish the, the, the challenge. And he defined the complaint as this way, expressing negative emotion or feelings about something you're not going to do anything about. Right? So if you are going to say something negative, then you also need to share what you're going to do about it. Right? And so rather than just saying it's cold outside, you say, it's cold outside, but I'm thankful it kills all those bugs that need to be killed in the winter. You know, there's something that you, you do there. You just don't express negativity. And it can maybe be like that with a bit with an anxiety where we worry about things that are out of our control or we worry and we run through things and it's like, Maybe we even pray about it over and over and over and again, or it's running through our mind, and we have never written them down, maybe, and then given them to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm going to give these things to you, and I'm going to take my energy. I'm going to forget myself, hopefully, and I'm going to live and serve you, worship you, and love others, serve others. Humility, anxiety, vigilance, and last of all, strength in verse 10 and 11. The God of all grace... We, we, the song, God will provide. God has all grace sufficient for us. The God of all grace, Peter writes to these believers who are in a difficult situation, who has called you unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after that ye have suffered a while. Make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. What kind of, that's a kind of a neat word picture. Perfect, strengthen you, root you get you settled. You're going to suffer, but in all of this, then God is going to make you strong and resilient, and you're going to have new, know who you are in Christ and who God is and how He works in your life, and you're going to be rooted to Him, be the glory and dominion forever 
and ever. Amen. We see that God isn't calling us to to comfort, but to growth. He calls us to faith, not certainty in exactly how every path of our life is going to, to flow. He calls us to resistance and not apathy as we're vigilant and as we live a life as a faithful, courageous Christian, but not just full of anxiety. Well, there's many people in our world today full of empty egos, busy trying to inflate them, busy trying to protect them, busy trying to do all the different things that we do, but it's through humility self-forgetfulness, and then all the things that follow that will be strong. We have the example of this Peter, that time when Jesus was about to be crucified, was very close to Jesus. And as Jesus was betrayed by Judas and he's being arrested, uh, Peter pulls out a sword and he cuts off someone's ear. I think he was aiming for the whole head, but he just got the ear and, and Jesus healed the ear and he said, that's not That's not what we're called to do right now. And then a little later, people ask Peter, as Jesus is being tried and going through all of that, he says, "Uh, Peter, you you were one of the friends of Jesus, right? You're connected with him. And at that point in time, uh, Peter's just fearful. He's afraid. And he says, no, I don't even know who that guy is. And he denies the Lord. But now Peter has humbled himself. He understands who he is. And it doesn't mean that he's back just fishing now, but he's leading thousands to Christ. But he had this example. This is how Paul describes Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, I mean, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. What God is saying to us is he's saying, I want you to be like that publican. I want you to be honest with me. I know who you are, and I just want to be on the same page. But if you'll come to me, warts and all, adultery and all, extortion and all, whatever you've done, whatever you've thought, if you'll just come to me, forget the ego, just come to me and give your heart to me. I will take you. And he did. On the cross, he took our sin upon himself and he gives us his righteousness. He says, now come follow me. You don't have to spend your life inflating your ego. You don't have to spend your life comparing and boasting. You don't have to do all of that. You can You can know who you are in me, that you have an eternal destiny reserved in heaven already taken care of. You're forgiven. You don't have to be vengeful because the Bible says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. You can focus your time and energy as a warrior, worshiping God, serving others through humility. Make sure if we're bottled down by this low fever of dread that just sort of occupies our thinking, that we we seek the Lord and how we can get that out of our head and out of our cares, and we can cast that on Him, understanding He cares for us. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that we all can come directly to You and Your throne. We're not reliant on just the church or 
other people, but because of what Christ did on the cross, we can trade our sin and accept His righteousness. And we can come to you openly, not trying to pretend, and just talk with you. Lord, I do pray that you'd help us to take those things that weigh us down, those cares and anxieties that sometimes cloud our vision, or we spend our life maybe not accomplishing something meaningful where we can truly love you and serve others and be lights and witnesses of the gospel because we're just so busy inflating ourselves and trying to fill an emptiness. Lord, help us to find our identity in you, cast our anxieties on you. Help us to be strong in resisting the roar of the devil. And Lord, that we might be strong Christians who can help lead others and encourage others as they journey with us in following you. I pray, Lord, if there's someone here today who has not, doesn't have peace with you, they haven't understood or given their heart to you and, and understood what Christ accomplished on the cross. Maybe we're busy trying to do good things to make you happy with us. And we have forgotten that, God, you loved us enough to send your son. And there's a gift. Anyone who believes in you should not perish but have everlasting life. That, that's a gift we need to accept and trust in what Christ has done for us rather than what we try to accomplish so that we don't simply live a life comparing ourselves with others. I pray that the gospel might be clear and that anyone, anyone hasn't trusted you as your Savior, that they might put their faith and trust in you. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. Keep your heads bowed and eyes closed if you would for just a moment. But I'd like to invite the piano to play and you to stand and there's a place to come, kneel and pray at the altar.